bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. My name is Erica, and we have a special guest for you today. With me is Angela McDougall, Executive Director at Battered Women's Support Services in Vancouver. Hello, Angela. Hey, Erica. How are you? Well, I'm waking up, as you know. Out here, it's uh, it's the West Coast. Uh, Yeah, three hours. I don't know what's happening for you out there in the center of the universe, also known as Ontario, (laughs) but out here in the West... We're still just waking up. Yo, I'm from Alberta, so I, I get it, okay? I always have to do the calculations in my head before I call. Yeah. So uh, it's still morning there for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So before we start, I'm just going to do a little bit of admin here and okay. tell our listeners that basically um, we're just going to ask you guys for money and support. Uh, because to be honest, we see Bad and Bitchy as a public service, one where you can get quick information hits through social media, where we write about those left behind and out of policy conversations in attempt to influence and where we keep you up to date, expose you and make you think about those who have different experiences than you due to race, gender, sexuality, class, citizenship, and ability. And when I mean support, I mean, contributing as little as 5 or $10 a month to our Patreon, patreon.com slash bad and bitchy. Um, in this time of coronavirus, I really do think it's our duty to highlight what's broken in our system and who is left behind. Because literally, I know I don't want to go back to the status quo. So we also have a weekly column in the Hill Times. The Hill Times is offering a 30-day free trial so you can use your downtime to check our articles out. Uh, Finally, we're on social media. All of our contact info will be found in the show notes of this episode. All right, so let's um, take a look at the state of gender-based violence Mm -hmm. even before the pandemic an average of 20 people in the U.S. experience physical domestic violence every minute. Um, One in four adult American women and one in seven adult American men have experienced some type of severe violence. Um, So disasters, whether hurricanes, earthquakes, or pandemics like the coronavirus, disrupt social and physical environments for large groups of people. These changes increase families' vulnerabilities to gender-based violence. After Hurricane Katrina in 2005, for instance, scholars found a one-third increase in emotional abuse and a nearly doubling in physical abuse among women experiencing gender-based violence. Okay, so now let's go to Canada. Um, Calls to um, crisis hotlines Uh, the Battered Women's Support Services have increased 300% over the last few weeks. So tell us a bit about this, Angela. First of Mm -hmm. all, tell us a bit about what you do Mm -hmm. and give us an overview of the state of 
gender-based violence, particularly domestic violence during COVID-19. Yeah, thanks, Erica. This is a you know pretty um, grim, perhaps, reality of what it means to be in a state of uh, social isolation. Yeah, uh, you know we uh, we started to t- we started really thinking about what it was going to mean for us here in Canada uh, when I started to see stats coming for, out of China. Uh, I had the privilege of going to China last year, I was in uh, Guangzhou and in Hong Kong. Guangzhou is mainland China. And I was there actually to meet with uh, feminist activists who were organizing around Me Too, interestingly. Oh, uh, no way. Uh huh. Who had actually gone to jail, who had been detained and gone to jail. Uh, There were five actually that had gone to jail for six weeks. Uh, So this was around how Chinese women were taking action on Me Too then. And so I had a chance to go and to talk about what we've been doing here and in Canada, I'm over here in uh, Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish territory, uh, also known as Vancouver. And so it was uh, a, a real honor and a, and, a, and a pleasure to be there and to be able to, to have those conversations then and to get a sense of what's going on in China. But it became really important when we, you know, when, I, when we started to see that COVID-19 was, you know, not the flu that we all mm-hmm. thought it was, it was going to be, or at least, you know, what, it, what we uh, were comparing it to initially. And so it was, um, for us at, at, as an organization, uh, BWSS started 40 years ago uh, to, with the whole point of ending violence against women. What we, we've uh, grown and adapted our approach and our analysis, and we brought in a, a feminist intersectional and a, de- a decolonial analysis. Uh, which is where we land today. So what was really uh, important was to then, for us, was to get out in front of it. We didn't want to, we wanted to uh, not, uh, get, not get behind. Um, and so we started to, to make it known that this was going to be a problem and that we wanted to let uh, our constituents know, all of those that are dealing with domestic violence here uh, in British Columbia. I mean, we're based in Vancouver, so much of our services are regional. However, because of the internet, because of toll-free numbers, of course, we're reaching well beyond, uh, you know, well beyond Vancouver proper or Metro Vancouver. So uh, we started to get the word out. And at the t- up until very recently, we, uh, we, our crisis line was open during the day, during the week. So it wasn't a 24-hour crisis line. Uh, we, but we, we started to advertise and then we decided we better go 24 hours because if we've got if we're putting um, if we're putting resources out into the out into the world around how victims because I won't call anyone a survivor until we know that they've survived uh, in terms of domestic violence. Uh, we put it out. We needed to go 24 hours, so we turned that around so quick. Uh, actually, I couldn't believe how quick we turned that around. We went from a during the week, during the day uh, crisis line to 24 hours and. And then we started to see progressive increases in the numbers of calls. And where we reached uh, a peak uh, of of 300% more calls than we would receive, than we had been receiving typically uh, during the, you know, as our our operations were during the day, during the week. So it was extraordinary uh, change. um, uh, And I think really important that we helped get the word out and has the nature of those calls changed between, so are you getting 
um, more uh, calls from children, for example? Are you getting more calls from first-time um, callers, not necessarily first-time victims, but first-time callers? 100%. So, uh, and I love the question because, you know, we didn't really know what to expect um, when we went 24 hours. We, we weren't quite sure because so much of this is unknown. I mean, this is the thing about a pandemic. You know, there isn't any perfect way to deal with a pandemic. You have to, you know, respond and, and the best and learn. So we, we didn't know what to expect. And so we uh, got the word out through social media and through our, our various social media platforms. Mm-hmm. And then through our like, email, and then we went on a media blitz. And so had the opportunity to talk to uh, a lot of media. And there's a Vice story that's out today, which uh, I just took a look at. Uh, and oh, a Vice story, you said. There is, yeah. So, uh, you know, the, I, the point is to get the word out, which is what we learned from the women in China, was to get the word out and to make sure there's services available. So the calls have been quite different. I mean, we've, we've had about a 40% increase in new callers. So uh, most of the calls are, are, um, are new callers. And those new callers uh, are, they're uh, women that are currently in abusive relationships. So, uh, sorry, about a 40% of, 40% of the calls are women that are currently in abusive relationships. And they're, you know, they're not necessarily leaving today, but they're planning, they're making a plan. And they're trying to figure out what options do I have now, given that maybe the transition houses, what I what I thought was my safety plan before, I need to reassess that. Uh, maybe I don't have, maybe I never had a safety plan that I had articulated, so now I want to do that. And so that's kind of the the, the new calls, though some are more, uh, in, in, you know, um, urgent where there is a desire to leave, and so then we we work to help um, secure a transition house and transportation and, and all of that. Um, there's, a, you know, about 30% of the calls are from women that have left uh, and are on their own. And, and what does on their own mean in real terms? Right. So they're not living with an abusive partner. Okay. But are they, they living somewhere? Yes. They have, okay. they have their own place. Okay. And they might be living with their children or maybe even their children and maybe other family members. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was, you know, that, and so what that, what we've seen then for callers is that there is, um, uh, there, there's, um, you know, women are dealing with the effects of trauma. I mean, to be in an abusive relationship means to be subjugated in an extraordinary way and to, you know, sexually, physically, and using power control. There's all kinds of tactics of power and control that are used and it is traumatizing. And so part of leaving an abusive relationship is to reckon with the, the, the trauma. And so what we saw then, what, what we're seeing with the callers is that they're dealing with the effects of trauma. Right. Which is everything about, um, you know, um, so a lot of despondency, like real despair and uh, loneliness, um, a lot of fears, big fears, uh, lots of, uh, uh, suicidality. Oh, yes. So yes. It's, it's, it's big, big. Wow. So, um, and, you know, so our strategies are different because this is a different time. I mean, there's a lot of unknowns right now. And, and so, uh, it, you know, and, I'll, you know, because we're working in an intersectional way, uh, you know, the women that access our services or they're calling our lines are, they're representing all the demographics 
you know, from, you know, BIPOC, uh, all, you know, and, and, and infusing with immigrant and migrant, um, you know, experiences in there, including Indigenous people. I mean, we have Indigenous people, of course, here in, in you know, in what's now known as Canada, uh, but, but a lot of immigrant people that, or even migrant refugee people that we're supporting from other places are considered, are Indigenous people from there mm -hmm. as well, particularly from Latin America. So, ah, uh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. That's the complexity. Yeah. Um, I think people don't really understand how complex interse intersectionality is. And um, that's just our world now. Our world is complex. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like, get with the program. The program. Or, or, like, no, seriously, the world is complex. Sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> like, sorry, not sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. <laughs> like, let's get on this and move really? forward. I just, <laughs> this is a stage where I'm at. So one of the things I want to get into is how would you, like you were talking about women who are planning to get out. Yes. How does COVID-19 affect those plans? Like, I want you to like give us an idea of, what the mundanity of things that change. I really want to get into the mundane stuff. Of course, the big stuff too, but the mundane stuff that leads to the big stuff. So for example, if you're a woman and you're planning to get out, um, the services that were available to you aren't available to you anymore, not in a real way. You can't go in and talk to somebody. Uh, how, how has a woman who's trying to get out, how has her planning changed and how have you guys worked to respond to that change? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, and I feel really fortunate to have been able to have connected with, you know, with feminists, uh, anti-violence organizers in China because we, we, we knew that, so yeah, the social distancing, a lot of organizations closed their doors. They did and they all moved, they all moved off site and it, it's taken a while for a lot of organizations to get up to speed around the working from home mm -hmm. and what that was going to mean and so i know a lot of organizations right now uh this isn't a criticism at all it's a, just the reality of how challenging and just kind of the kind of the reality of being bombarded with this new uh situation around how you know just what survival was going to mean and all the social panic that was in effect uh, so right now we're starting to see that um, organizations that were, I mean, a lot of organizations went offline, kind of, more or less, and that you could, really? well, it took a while, like for the emails to get set up and, yeah. for the phones and for people to get their laptops and even to get wrapped their heads around working from home, which is a total thing. Well, that's true because we're also dealing with um, places that have had maybe crunch funding. For sure. I know in Ontario, that's been the case. So like 100%. think about having to have the network equipment and the network set up to right. work from home. And, you know, for those of us who don't work in nonprofit, we take that for granted. So sure. that's, that's a very good point that even the help that you're used to, or that is usually accessible, there's, there's a point, there's a lag time Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a few days, maybe it's a few weeks, depending on the organization, for them to be able actually to respond to what they used to. For sure. 
For sure. You know, yeah. everyone was trying to figure out what they were going to do about their, people are getting laid off and then, uh, but this That's is- That's why I'm a proponent thing. of A-based funding, by the way. Well, here's the thing, you know, Erica, I got to say, this was at the request, um, I got a, requ- got a request, there was a bunch of us across the country that actually wrote letters to the, to the Prime Minister and to the Minister of Finance. And, and my letter was really specific. It was uh, looking for, because this was, this was well over a month ago, I have to say now, that that letter went. So, so this like, letter was in February or March? It was in March. Okay. So, because, uh, um, yeah, we're, yeah, we're kind of almost six weeks into this in a sense. Um, yeah, so I, we wrote the letter and, and I'd asked, I'd asked the prime minister and the minister of finance for very specific things. And that was around urgent funding that was to, you know, cause the, around enha- enhancing, uh, organization's ability to do the service modifications that they were going to need to do. Right. To get the equipment and the, the supplies that they needed, and then also to manage their staffing. And yeah. It was a very specific thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that didn't happen in the way that I wanted it to. There was something did happen, but it wasn't 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 what I wanted. <laughs> what I thought was best. Uh, I'm, and, I'm and doing. I, I'm doing. You know the the black and white prince gif where he tilts his head and he just he just shakes yeah. his head like this. That's my response right now. Well, you know. <laughs> well, and that's that money. I mean, there's some money. I mean, fifty million dollars did get allocated. Uh, about $20 million is going towards sexual assault uh, programs. Okay. Uh, and then uh, sexual assault programs and um, uh, shelters and transition houses, which is great to help with. And then there's a, a portion that's going to a much smaller portion, I must say. Uh, it's just important to understand Canada when I say that. That's going to Indigenous uh, organizations, uh, which, you know, which quite frankly have more need in a sense so that probably should have been some par- you know, parody there. Uh, and so, the, but what was missing from that funding was, and I should tell you that the funding hasn't flowed yet. I mean, there, it's still, it's going through, it's the bureaucracies and the layers of kind of, mm-hmm. I mean, it hasn't even, there isn't even a way to apply for it yet. You know, we're six weeks in. So it's really slow. In the meantime, you know, um, we made the point of doing right away of getting COVID-19 information right on our website right away. And now we had to, we didn't have any examples necessarily mm-hmm. yet to, mm-hmm. uh, but we use our best knowledge about mm-hmm. what it means to be in an abusive relationship, to be isolated, to be dealing with various kinds of power and control, and sexual and physical violence. And we, we applied what, you know, what we imagined would be the, the case. We, you know, we applied our knowledge to this scenario and we weren't that far off. Uh, I would say the, the, you know, what we put on there was just our best case. Uh, and then we've been adapting it ever since based on, based on real lived experiences. Right. Uh, so, but the whole, so that we did that early, we've had over a million, you know, we were just a little women's organization over here in Vancouver, just lady bitty. And uh, so for us to get, you know, to have a million visits to our website over. Wow. Yeah. Is wild. You know, our host is like, hold up, you know, this is a lot. Um, But we know it's just a blip in the screen. We'll we'll go back to normal. We'll go back to some version of normal at some point. Uh, But we were really glad that we were able to provide that information specific to COVID-19 and domestic violence because uh, first, quite frankly, uh, because the it we really wanted women to help plan 
We want women to plan for their safety. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so we think that's what's happening. And we have some evidence that that's been what's happening is that as a result of getting the word out uh, for you know, getting those visits, the calls that we're getting is that they're planning for safety. It doesn't well, mean- Well, right here it says, if you need to plan around leaving, <laughs> I mean, I like it. It's damn direct, period. This yes, is where yes. you need to be. Yeah, no, I, I'm on the website, as you can tell. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. So www.bwss.org. Thank you. Yeah, we dedicate our homepage to that. And uh, yeah, we, uh, it, was, it was the right thing to do. And um, so, the, you know, uh, you mentioned earlier about calls. And yeah, we have gotten, we have gotten some calls from children uh, who... They're also, they were also planning for their safety. I mean, they, they've witnessed their mother's abuse for their whole, whole life. Mm. Um, because, like, you know, the youngest call we had was from a 12-year-old. Uh, we've had some young, young adults, like 18, so young, young um, older youth, I should say, 18, 19, 20-year-olds that have called that are living in their family home. And they've, um, you know, they've witnessed their mother's abuse their whole life. Uh, they, so they've wanted, they wanted to, they called to uh, check out what options that they had right now and how they could engage their mother and their siblings and they were concerned about themselves. And so that was, I thought, and um, I think really, really important. We're still getting calls from young people uh, that are still asking those questions. And that I think is uh, the power of the internet mm -hmm. and Instagram. Because it's with the you know Instagram has been a big uh, platform for us and sharing getting the word out uh, and helping us go, go across the age spectrum. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's been it's been good that we get those calls. We think that we think we think the increase in calls is a good thing, Erica. We think it's a really good thing, and we want we want that to continue because people are reaching out. Yes. Are, well, yeah, yeah. People are reaching out. Yeah. Yeah. So, Interesting. So it's funny that you mentioned like the 18 to 20 year olds, because I mean, there's so many cascading effects. The closure of schools is a huge issue. Yeah. Um, having to go back home. And for many people, home is not safe. That's right. And, um, you know, this is not only physical violence, sexual violence, emotional right. violence psychological trauma, all of that gets reignited and in such, and since we're all clustered and it's like a concentration That's of right. like a powder keg. You know, right. I was watching, um, funny, it's, this is what went through my head. So uh, not naturally, I'm, we're Netflixing and uh, <laughs> I, you know, Money Heist on Netflix? Yeah, I, yeah, I've I've watched um, an episode or two of it. Yes. Yeah. Wait a minute. It's it's a it's a series, right? Yeah, it's a series. Yeah. I mean, like this thing, I just started it. Anyway, what the main character, the negotiator in the background, is fighting mm -hmm. domestic abuse from her partner, who is mm -hmm. also a cop, right? That she has to work with. Mm -hmm. So, like just the tension and the emotional stuff and the psychological shit around that. It's, it's, it just made me think yes. about this conversation mm -hmm. just in a way that I didn't expect to. Mm -hmm. And in a way where 
you think about, and what I started thinking about was this, the psychological and emotional manipulation. Yeah. And as she said, she says that, so she's talking to somebody, I won't give it away. And she says, and he says, yeah, you don't seem like what I would expect uh, um, uh, uh, a survivor to look like. Hmm. And she said, if it started with violence, nobody would be with an abuser. Hmm. It doesn't start off with violence. It always starts off with that emotional and psychological manipulation. 100%. So it's also that too. We also... It's, it's funny, like, if, if somebody doesn't hit you, then it's almost like it's not violent enough for us to care. That's true. And, and I mean, that just shows a, a major dysfunction in terms of what we think of gender-based violence to be. Thank you. That, that's, you nailed it. That's, uh, that's it. And that's, you know, in part why... Um, you know, uh, you know, we, we, we always draw, as you mentioned, draw the line at physical assault. It's like, of course, might ask ourselves if I was ever in a relationship and I was hit, most of us would say I would leave. That would be the first thing I would leave. But it's not mm-hmm. as straightforward as that. It's much more uh, calculating. It's much more um, kind of dismantling of our sense of ourselves and, uh, and the way that uh, abusive partners will use isolation and then uh, uh, name calling and and denying and minimizing and blaming and uh, you know where at some point we start to feel that we're responsible for the abuse because we're told that we are and 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 so uh, that and then the isolation compounds that so um, and most abusive relationships there isn't physical violence there's sexual violence Mm. there um, there isn't physical violence uh, so that, and so that's the thing about why the police, um, reports in some jurisdictions haven't gone up is because, um, there isn't necessarily the physical violence, uh, because that's where we draw the line. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's where the criminal code draws the line. Ah, uh, that's interesting. You can have an extraordinarily abusive relationship and nobody's been hit. And so the calls that we get are all about the fear of fear and the threats that they've already been, women have already received about being killed, about, um, you know, violence, about all kinds of things. So they're, that, that threat is there and, the, and it's compounded by the isolation that is baked into, uh, you know, with what we're doing right now under COVID-19. And so that's why it's different in a sense. And that's in part why um, that uh, police, reports might be the same there might not be an increase there might even be a decrease see this is a thing that you know so naturally i don't believe the police so because <laughs> i'm black um <laughs> it's true <laughs> it's not like they've given me a reason to believe them but they but the bank no here what's that no argument here. <laughs> so the Vancouver police say that they have not seen a spike in their domestic sure. violence statistics, but they are closely monitoring any increase in domestic violence and child abuse that may be occurring amid quarantines and self-isolation. And I, so my first thing, naturally, my first instinct was, well, I would like to see how you measure those statistics. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And 
I'm sorry, are people just automatically calling the police? Yeah, people don't call the police typically. Why uh, would you call they, the police? They won't believe you. And then you have to go, you have to relive your trauma through the cops. So that's the, you know, most, most incidences of domestic violence and for that matter, sexual violence are not reported to the police. And what's interesting, so that's just, that's just, that's just prior to COVID-19. And so right now with all the, all the precariousness around housing, transition houses, uh, it, and also it's, it's less likely that, you know, I would, I would say that in some jurisdictions it's reasonable to think that calls to the police could, uh, would stay the same or actually go down. Yeah. Uh, and that's why, that's why a crisis line such as ours, it ends up being a vital option because then we can help people strategize and think through things and, and maybe the police ends up being a, re, a you know, a, a, could be a resource for some people. And, and certainly it is a part of many women's safety plan, like the 911 ends up being one of the, uh, one of the, the uh, you know, resources that are in a whole list of options. But, you know, we got a call actually from uh, somebody, well, more than one call where this was the case, uh, of a neighbor uh, who was who was concerned about their uh, neighbors and was concerned about um, a woman that was being assaulted and and he was unwilling to call the police. He thought that would not be helpful uh, for the woman because mm-hmm. the woman was an immigrant woman who was of color and her partner was um, a large white man mm-hmm. um, uh, and was oh, fairly serious. This was not going to be a good option. So was trying to figure out what he could do without the police under COVID-19. And aren't that you, was um, an important conversation to have. Aren't you, uh, aren't you encouraged by that a little bit? Because like, talk, of, talk about thinking through something. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I remember, okay, so when I, I lived in England for a bit, uh, like years ago, and I, I was at my aunt's house and I like, you could tell that the man next door was hitting his wife. And it was just me alone in, in the house at the time. Yeah, it's kind of jarring, huh? It's a jarring it, thing. It is kind of when you fucking realize what's happening. And then like all these things go through your head and then you're thinking, holy fuck, what do I do? I mean, I'm not a part of this country either, even though I've sort of preferred status as a Canadian, right? Yes. In terms of the the pantheon of citizenships, let's put it that way. Yep. The citizenship is power. I don't know if anybody knows that, but you know, it is. It's, no, it's I felt privilege. it. I felt it for sure. Yeah, it's a privilege. Anyway, um, so what I did was I so I didn't know who to call or what to do, so I just banged on the wall. And I said, if, if you don't stop, I'm going to call the police. Mm-hmm. And apparently the threat was enough. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, it's England. Who knows anybody's immigration situation? Mm-hmm. But um, I didn't call the police because mm-hmm. who knows? I, like, I don't know how things like worked over there. But the threat enough was enough to stop at the moment and i never heard it again Mm -hmm. not to say that he didn't beat her again but the point is is that 
I feel like he was aware that somebody could be listening. Yes. You yeah. know what I mean? I do. And that is, uh, there's a lot of power in, in that uh, bystander kind of uh, approach, which is to say, you're not, this, this, this is, you're not alone with this, that somebody on the other side of this wall is aware of it yeah. and doesn't agree, is not yeah. complicit, does not yes. agree. Yeah. And that's, that's an important uh, thing. It can be tricky sometimes also because of just the nature of relationships and yeah because uh, yeah. abusive partners can then use that as more more ammo kind of for the the survivor the, the mm -hmm. victim uh, and it can also be a situation where the victim then goes after the bystander it's like leave me alone mind your own business like mm -hmm. because they they recognize that they're in this you know this container of, yeah. of violence and so to have their experiences exposed to others and to have their abusive partner come under any scrutiny will come back on them in some yeah. way at some point. So they yeah. want to be an ally to their abusive partner in that moment, which confuses people oftentimes. Uh, but it's the nature of the, of the thing. So, um, so this is also gives another layer of the complexity right now under COVID, right? Mm -hmm. Cause it's, you know, it's not, it's not the same. Like we have to think of new strategies and, and apply knowledge in real time and, do the best we can and and uh you know and and so i think your response about banging on the on the wall is a useful uh, and letting you know letting the letting let any anything that we can do is to say listen we're we're what, what's happening here or is there not we're not turning a blind blind eye to it yeah. we know what's happening yeah and and we don't condone it yeah which is the often the reason why abusive partners do what they do is because they get away with it uh, that's that's basically why it works because they there's no it's with impunity yeah. and, and and that's where the police come in is because they tend not to be great both in terms of their investigation which oftentimes they don't do a good job um, the way that the different individual police officers um, deploy the various policies that are supposed to guide the way they deal with domestic violence when they show up and then you have to remember that police are just humans at the end of the day and they've got their own baggage and their own ideas and their own misogyny and their own, you know, viewpoints. And just they because they have the badge and the gun and the training doesn't yeah. mean that there's, they're devoid of, of that. Uh, it's, not, it's not separate from how they apply. They have a lens that they're still viewing things through. Oh, for sure. So it's tricky. Oh, for sure. So, um, so how does... Sorry, I'm like, <laughs> I'm listening to you. I totally forgot my next question. <laughs> this is fun. I'm having a good time talking hey. to you. So, um, about this grim topic. I'm yes. having a good time talking about this grim topic with you, Erica, because you're right. This is a public service and I'm glad for the opportunity. Well, yeah, I just, you know what? I have a whole bunch of COVID ideas in my head that, um, I went through this like two week period of like a writer's block. And then all of a sudden I got over that and all of a sudden I'm like, Ooh, I could do so much. Nice. And it's true. I think that in this time of isolation, I mean, let's talk about this shit. Let's talk about the, the difficult stuff because we can't run away from it anymore. It is popping up everywhere. Everybody is, I mean, I would like to get in more into, um, immigration status and mm -hmm. how that adds to the whole complexity or the shattered mirror sort of image sort yeah. of, of, of domestic violence, because um, that's a huge issue too. And it's being, it's a silent one. 
And because, you know, these people are invisible to us. And so my sort of purpose with this podcast and whatever we do with the writing and so on and so forth is just to open people up and open myself up. Like this is education for me too, right? Uh, And challenge some of our preconceived ideas, challenge some of my own sort of, you know, internalized misogyny, internalized anti-blackness, internalized anti-whatever, because that's what we've been taught, right? And so why not spend this time that we we have time for the first time globally? So, I mean, want to go back to the status quo? I know I don't. Yeah, I hope the reset is something transformative. Exactly. So if we can be part of sort of that, even if it's just a little part of this transformation or this transformative process, I am happy, honored to do it. And, um, but yeah, let's get back to um, uh, immigrant status. Yes. Citizenship lack thereof, and domestic violence. Um, So, first of all, uh, so I came across um, a November 1917 report for the Community Leader in Justice Fellowship of Law Foundation of Ontario. Sorry, Mm -hmm. Ontario. Um, In partnership with Barbara Schliffer. Schleifer. Barbara Schleifer Clinic. Yeah. Yes. Barbara Schleifer. Sorry, Barbara. Uh, (laughs) And the rights of non-status women. women. So I came across this. I thought it was so, I'm going to read this more, but she talks about, so there's a toolkit in here. It describes trauma. It's, um, it talks about what it means to have precarious immigration status. So just allow me to kind of put this on the table. So precarious immigration status refers to any kind of less than full immigration status. In Canada, precarious status includes documented but temporary workers, students, and refugee applicants, as well as authorized forms of status, such as visa and permanent residence. Precarious status can also refer to different forms of non-status, including undocumented entrants, persons who have been human trafficked, Mm -hmm. and individuals who have had their refugee claim uh, rejected. Now, I've been pretty critical with this government in terms of the way they deal with immigrants and the demonization of undocumented undocumented workers and refugees. Mm -hmm. Um, So to me, this is a silent group um, and and a particularly vulnerable and marginalized group. And so there are additional factors which may further exacerbate the vulnerability of racialized women with precarious immigration status, racial profiling, cultural stereotyping, racism and xenophobia and apparently um how that works is well for one you're less likely to engage with the state you're less likely to um 
to actually look into getting resources. Mm -hmm. You're less likely to do the planning we were talking about to get out. And, you know, that is exacerbated by, you know, things like uh, stop and frisk slash carding slash street checks that they're doing now in the wake of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I just, I just want to put all that out there. Yes. <laughs> I know layers and layers. That's no, it's good. It's good. Yeah. So first I just, um, this is, I want to talk about this. The first I want to do is just uh, mention that Barbara Schleifer um, was raped and murdered in 1980. She was a lawyer. And that was, uh, she, she had just returned home after celebrating her call to the bar. So that the clinic is, is a memorial to her. The Shut Schleifer. up. Yeah. So just, wow. uh, just, just that, just that. And so Barbara Schleifer. No, I'm glad for the background. Yeah, for sure. The, um, the Barbara Schleifer Clinic is doing great work, uh, as are a lot of uh, groups across the, the country that are looking at the intersection of the, um, the law, in this case, immigration law and gender-based violence. And, you know, Canada, in the very making of Canada as a nation, brought was to have these, the whole economy is based on a portion of the population that has precarious immigration status. If we think about railway work, you know, uh, Chinese uh, citizens that were working on the railway, uh, if we think about the, um, uh, the, the temporary worker program that we see in present day, the migrant worker program that we see that is specific to uh, working in agricultural environments. These have been, uh, uh, they're baked into Canada's economy is to have this precarious immigration work, um, this precarious uh, status for workers. Mm -hmm. And that they're, they're it's, it's built in to the, the business model. And, and then, it, of course, it means a lot of vulnerability for folks uh, who are already dealing with all kinds of things in the country that they originated from. That's, right. It wasn't like they were on the top of the food chain there. And that the whole thing about being in this precarious environment under uh, immigration is a direct result of the precarious that, that has already exists. And so and that is racialized. I mean, it's 100% racialized. There's no question that, you know, that the, the, the amount of melon in your skin is a factor to the extent to which you have precarious immigration status in Canada. It's, they're baked in, they're, these things are not separate. And then there's the, the gender piece, which, um, you know, Canada started, at first, black people, you know, Canada shut down black immigration at, at a very, at a particular point in time. I believe and, it was John A. McDonald who was talking about how he didn't want black people in Canada. So him and a whole bunch of others after the fact, uh, and then what opened it up when there was a, a temporary worker arrangement that was to bring women from the Caribbean to uh, as domestic workers. By and the way, can we, can we pause right there? Because there was a piece of, I interviewed Desmond Cole a few weeks ago for his, yeah. his newest book. There's a part in there about domestic workers uh, in Canada. Yeah. And how Caribbean women came to Canada. I while you while you talk, I will look for it. Please don't see this as a death. Yeah, well, and I should tell um, you, I wrote, I wrote a blog specific about Black women uh, in Canada for Black women. And uh, <laughs> is this on the B? Is, is this on the BWSS website? It is. Yeah, okay. I'll send it to you. I'm looking. The uh, yeah, Black women in Canada, and it uh, did it for International Women's Day, but it was also for Black History Month. Uh, you know, because, you know, those days that kind of emerge. At yeah. Some point. 
and um, yeah, so the the yes, I'm glad that Desmond Cole, uh, you know, looked at that because it's um, yeah, I'm glad that he brought in a gender perspective. It's good. We could we got to bring in gender here. Uh, oh yeah, no, no, no. It's really I I recommend um, because there's he he mixes gender with um, with race and economic. It, it's just wonderful. Um, but can we just say, I really want to make this point, And the reason I brought up Desmond Cole, because this is where I wanted to make the point, And then I forgot. Um, Wes, the, when you're talking about precarious employment, precarious yes. employment was there to satisfy and fur in furtherance of the white majority's economic progress. Sure. Right now, Black women from the Caribbean, progress, yes, in, in quotations, we're doing air quotes, <laughs> and, and um, or let's say ascension, is that better? Great, good one. Yeah, so um, black, um, black and brown women from the Caribbean were brought, mostly black women, hence racialized, um, was, were brought to Canada as domestic workers under the domestic workers scheme. Yes. Now, they were brought there so that they could take care of white women's children sure. so that white Canadian women can ascend up the socioeconomic ladder. White women in Canada partially owe their quote unquote success to those black women because they didn't have to take care of their children. They could go in and gain power, and that's what they did. And then and that's, that's been the biggest criticism of you know feminism in yeah. in terms of the equality agenda, because it's like who are we equality equal to who? What is yeah. the equality that uh, that is trying to be achieved here? And so uh, that's why an intersectional intersectional you know anti oppression and, and a decolonial lens is actually an important one because it helps us unpack these the layers of power uh, and privilege. And, uh, and it, it gives us a framework for understanding what equity actually is about and that we can move off of equality and look at an equity and a liberation uh, approach in understanding our human experiences. That it wasn't sufficient to have gender and equality at the heart of it because then we end up talking about our Filipino nannies or our Caribbean nannies and- yeah. Uh, uh, which is exactly what I heard one day at the gym when I was on the bike. I heard two women talking about their Filipino nannies and, uh, and it was, uh, you know, jarring to, uh, it was, you know, distressing on so many levels, knowing what, you know, what we know about the ways in which the stuff shakes down. And yeah. so, so the, the, the domestic uh, worker scheme at that time was, I found the blog post. We'll post we it on the show notes. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, you're right. I mean, these, these are the factors that we, and this is the stuff that we're attempting to disrupt in terms of bringing a real sense of liberation and, uh, uh, and redressing historical wrongs. And um, it's a lot of work and it's not done. However, in this reset, as we're, you know, we're working toward a reset, there could be, uh, you know, some opportunities for some really good activism and some really good advocacy. Uh, that could help, uh, you know, shake and change and transform. You know, right now Vancouver is talking about, you know, it's concerned about its revenue because it, it's not, you know, it's not going to get property taxes. They've had to lay off a bunch of employees. 
so that, you know, and so I think that, I think nation, I think cities and provinces and nations are going to have these kinds of questions right now about how the economic model is, you know, in terms of tax revenue and, and, you know, and resource extraction. I mean, we rely mm -hmm. so much on Canada was based on resource extraction, uh, you know, fish and mining and forestry and, you know, oil and gas. That's Canada. Canada. One trick pony. Don't have another yeah. plan. Thank you. Oh my gosh. I, I, you're, you're like, take, you're sucking the words from my head. Because I love how people talk about, well, can't Alberta diversify? I'm like, Canada hasn't diversified since Confederation. We're still a resource-based economy. Where are you going with this? <laughs> yeah, we, we don't, and we're not brave enough right now. There isn't the, the courage, uh, the political will and courage to make that bold step. Um, yeah, you know, and that's the thing about capitalism. It's... Um, and the global economy, it's very yeah. difficult to, to kind of, you know, pull off and pull out of there and, and create something new. But this reset is mm -hmm. a chance, at least uh, for the people. Uh, governments end up, um, you know, being defined and led by the people. And what we haven't figured out yet, I don't think, is to mobilize ourselves as people. Yeah. Uh, getting behind some of these new ideas so that we can be ready uh, mm -hmm. you know, when the move back to normal, yeah, uh, which I suspect will happen in about two months. I don't think how, I don't think people realize how vulnerable um, government and political spaces are right now. They really are ripe for disruption. They really are because like, why do you think the conservatives are hard, like holding on to relevance, right? It's because all their ideas are, are, are looking, are showing up as bad. Like, like oh, fiscal conservatism, eh, you know what I mean? Like, neoliberalism, eh, like, it's, it, that's why we're here right now. So I, I really do think that there's an opportunity to, um, to regroup, um, like you said, mobilize through activism. And, you know, the other thing too is like every party is hanging on by a thread. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do. I really do. NDP yeah. just perennially looks bad at this point. What Sotowin didn't help them, well, they didn't help themselves, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, you know, what's going on with, 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 you know, police violence in Manitoba, the NDP are, eh. uh, like, I just, the conservatives haven't had a good idea in about 40 years, okay, 45, hella jet, you know, um, and the liberals are in a minority government. Hello, people. I'm just it's saying, you know, because, uh, you know, I was just, I, I, I was reading something the other day, earlier in the week, and I'm just looking at it right now about Spain, you know, moving to permanently establish universal basic uh, income. Yes. That, that is very interesting to help uh, citizens weather the economic fallout. Uh, yeah. Which would make the, the first nation in Europe to do so. Yeah. And, and Portugal made their migrant workers or they gave them status or something like that. Which is also interesting because a lot of those migrant workers were African. Yes. Uh, so that's something very interesting because there was, of course, all of that struggle there in terms of Africans returning 
wow. going to the colonial, you know, the colonial nations. Okay, the fact that Portugal had African migrant workers irks me, okay? Especially given that they basically owned Angola for so long. And I'm just like, yep. how are they migrant when you like, anyway, never mind. No, that's, a, that's an important analysis. This idea. I, I, it's I, like, I, it's like decolonization is an important, you know, theoretical uh, analysis to to bring to this right now. Yeah, like like yeah. you you, you <laughs> like you ran. I don't I don't think people realize the 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 connection between Portugal and Angola is really really strong because yeah. they they were there since seventeen whatever, and yeah. you know this idea that the Africa that you colonize you're now importing um, migrant workers and and de and like giving them like this this not without status is my point yes. and then and then you want a pat on the back because you recognize the people that you originally subjugated. Like, like the layers. I'm going to send you this image. This uh, yes. came from this, uh, this, uh, Ooh, it just looks at how Africa was carved up by, uh, by European nations as of 1884. Wow. It looks at the various regions that were under various European control. And uh, it's it's good the French are another one coming to think of it. Sorry, let me just get this out. The French, the French love their colonized racism. They really do. They wanted to set up a petri dish in Africa for their vaccine to 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 what treat white people? Like I like the layers of that. The layers. I just I just. I just, anyway, let's get back to immigrants. Well, no, but this is really important thing because I think what we've struggled for as African people is, you know, the whole medical system was really based on this idea that we weren't human. Yeah. That, we, uh, that we're not human. Yeah. We are some, you know, version of a, you know, of a species, but not human. And that he, the only humans were Europeans. So all, all the medical systems, the health systems, all around the world have some version of that. And that shakes out in very real ways about this idea that we don't feel pain the same mm -hmm. as everyone else. That, uh, you know- We're superhuman. We, you know, or we're animalistic. Or animal, we're either superhuman or animals. Like, I, I don't under, anyway. So no, that's legit. That's a legit thing that continues to uh, be part of the, the, you know, it's baked in, it's, uh, you know, embroidered on the, the health, uh, and a lot of the research, I mean, you know, the, the various research in the U.S. So when we hear about the French, these French, um, you know, the health science scientists, uh, and that they're thinking about doing experimentation in Africa, it's like it's that, that it, though it's shocking in the 21st century to, to know that that's, uh, that is, um, that, that, that those words are being said out loud and on tape. Uh, these ideas have persisted for uh, a long time and they, the, and it's just, you know, these ideas persist and they, they, it is discussed. Uh, and it's just so happened that this became, this happened on tape, which is the, the benefit, I think, of how the digital world allows us inside of uh, these spaces where we haven't receipts. been inside before. Yeah, receipts. So tell <laughs> us about, 
So tell us about how, um, what goes into sort of um, helping women without status, precariously, um, precarious status, let's say. Yes. How do your responses change? What are their unique? Right. So the biggest thing is, yeah. So the biggest thing is uh, needing to get information about their legal status. So uh, oftentimes abusive partners will, you know, uh, not be not be honest about their immigration status. Some abusive partners um, maybe have said that they've sponsored uh, uh, their partner uh, and that, or that they've applied for sponsorship. Or so there's a whole thing about getting clear about what the status actually is. Wow. Uh, wait, let yeah. me stop you there. So yeah. in other words, there are many women who don't even know what their status is right. because it's the man takes care of it. That's but right. we know that they're dumb. Um, <laughs> Well, you know, we know that they don't necessarily have the right answers. And if you question them, then that that's a whole nother kettle of fish. You know, you don't want, you know, how dare you question them? But you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like you know, um, I do. The point is, is that they are kept in the dark about whether or not they can basically walk outside the door and not get arrested by immigration. And that's by design. I mean, that's part of the power and control. Imagine yeah. the power that you have to actually yeah. be able to tell somebody and know the precarity of, uh, you know, being removed from the country by, you know, uh, you know, by a police agency or, I mean, that's a lot of power. And that's, that's by design. Abusive partners withhold that information for mm -hmm. a reason. Yeah. And so that's, so that's the first thing we do is that we will help her get accurate information. Uh, we have, you know, there's every organization is different. I can talk about what we do. We have legal advocates, uh, and uh, and we have our our various staff that are essentially legal advocates and have expertise because we're working in an intersectional way. We have to work with legal legal issues all the time, mm -hmm. and so we have a lot of experts that aren't necessarily legal advocates, but they're just experts because of working frontline with women. And so that would be the first thing is to get what, figure out what the, her immigration status is. Mm -hmm. uh, and then depending on what her status is, then we would then uh, help, uh, help her access whatever legal remedies that she could access within the immigration uh, and refugee uh, legislation. Mm -hmm. so we've done that. We've done that successfully. There's uh, diff different things that are, that are options. And so, uh, so this is what we all did prior to COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So under COVID-19, it's more complicated because she um, may not be able to have a fulsome conversation with us on the phone. Um, and depending on where she's from, there's always issues of uh, um, language. Uh, though we have many languages that uh, we speak uh, in terms of our staff and our volunteers, we don't have all the languages on the line at the time. So that's another thing is kind of matching up the language if, if English um, is, uh, is, is not one of her perhaps many languages that she mm -hmm. uh, perhaps speaks. So, um, so then we need to not figure out the, the language uh, to make sure that we got the right language. And it's just, the, it's just not as simple as just anybody speaking that language because the terms that we end up talking about are uh, unique terms like domestic violence. And, mm -hmm. and most, a lot of interpreters are... Um, uh, you know, translators, you know, they have their own spin on these words because, mm -hmm. again, misogyny is a hell of a drug and patriarchy <laughs> ruling 
So yeah. it's just not as straightforward as, as just, you know, you have to have somebody that understands the issue. Um, but we do that work and we will provide that information. And then we want to help her access whatever legal remedies are available to her under the immigration uh, which, and, and refugee law, uh, which we have done and we will continue to do. Um, but at this case, I think for, you know, it'd be hard to do that while she's living with an abusive partner. Yeah. And so the planning would be to assist her to figure out um, leaving. And, uh, and then we would just wrap the support uh, around her uh, at that point. Um, and, you know, and we're, we've gotten really creative right now with mm -hmm. that. We ended up, uh, so transition houses have been full anyway, just prior to COVID, they're just full because, you know, domestic violence is an epidemic. Yeah. Uh, but we actually have a hotel that's given us, a, and it's a, you know, it's a beautiful hotel in downtown Vancouver that's given us a whole floor of rooms. So oh, wow. Access to a whole, whole floor of rooms. And then some of our colleagues also have hotels. So we've actually got a lot of spaces right now relative to assist women. Uh, well, that's what those Airbnb people can, can provide too. We did actually, we did actually hear from uh, a couple of women that had Airbnb spaces that they wanted nice. to get. Yeah. So, so there's, there's something people can do. If you own an Airbnb space, donate it to your local shelter, women's or crisis center, like, like 100%. donate the space. Yes. You're not going to make money off of it. So donate the space hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. So there's a way to help people. Definitely. Um, so race. So why can't I find stats about like domestic violence? And you know, I went, okay, so this is what irritates me. Okay. I went to stats can and stats can apparently doesn't do anything intersectionally. I uh, like, so they have their fi family violence report or their family violence statistics, nothing about race, zero. And I'm like, how is this even possible in today's like state of data? Right. How is that even how? Well, we know how we know why, but the point. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing that's interesting about that is so. And it's tricky because it's, there's a trickiness to it. On one hand, yeah, we want that. We want that data because it helps us get a sense of the inequities and the the disparity and with the idea that then we can redress that. Uh, so, um, but you know, but, but places that have it already, like the United States and, you yeah. know, and others, they didn't set it up for great altruistic ideas. They set no. it up to, to be able to subjugate more pro prolifically, yeah. which, is why, which is why Canada does have it in terms of indigenous people. That is the, you know, that, oh. that is the, the way that Canada set it up. Canada attracts Indigenous people uh, from the cradle to the grave and has, uh, and there's even researchers right now, right today, that are, that are researching right now through with government, uh, which I believe through government um, inspired or supported ways to assess the impact of COVID-19 on Indigenous populations. Mm. It's, you know, some of the most kind of cynical and uh, distressing um, kind of factors of the, you know, of the bureaucratic industrial, uh, you know, industry that is just based on monitoring indigenous people mm -hmm. in Canada. So Canada does have data 
quite a bit of data on indigenous people and Canada made that decision very much based on the idea to continue the subjugation of indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And so that's, so that's, that's kind of got to be kind of factored into why we don't have this data for around the rest of us. Mm -hmm. uh, there is information about business. So that's, you will find data on sort of where business immigration is coming from and you will get sort of breakdowns on nation states and things. Mm -hmm. And that also gives us an infor some information about what Canada's priorities are in terms of which information it wants to collect and, and why uh, in terms of wanting to, you know, from the business and the economy perspective. And though it's not race-based, it is nation state based, mm -hmm. which uh, can, you know, that it doesn't give us the whole picture, but it gives us some of the picture. Uh, and so uh, the other thing that Canada didn't do or hasn't done is that it, you know, as, as a federation with the various provinces and territories, it hasn't, um, you know, like health and, and other issues are dealt by the, with the provinces. And so um, the pro they kind of left it to the provinces to do their own thing around that. Yeah. And the provinces haven't done their own thing with the exception of analyzing and, you know, co correlating and, and researching, uh, you know, information on indigenous people. Well, it's funny because it's like, be careful what you wish for. However, whenever they're, you know, resistant to stuff for us, I just assume that, you know, oh, we've hit something, press it till it hurts. You know what I mean? And the fact that the Ontario government doesn't want to connect, collect that data means that there's something valuable about that data. That's my, in today's, yeah. like, the thing about it is, is that, is that now data is used by so many people that yes. it's gold, right? And um, there was a time when it was only housed within that bureaucratic complex. Right. Now everybody can access it and now they don't want to do it. Hmm, I wonder. Yeah. So that, I, I agree that there's 100% we need data and you know, shoot. Like, but I see what you're saying at the same time because it's a double-edged sword, right? Well, it started that way. It started that way. I mean, it wasn't altruistic in terms of the U.S. I mean, you know, and I lived for a time in the United States, and the first thing they do is they, your race, your race, your race. I mean, even Chuck D, you know, from Public Enemy, he, you know, in, in the, um, uh, um, in that amazing album that they did 20 years in, which of course I can't remember now because I haven't had enough coffee, and it's um, how, to sell, how to sell soul to a soulless people who sold their soul. It was a oh, yes. That's and the he, one I always forget. Yeah, the long and whining road is the song. And he talks about, you know, it has, says Negro on my birth certificate. And so the, like, it's the whole point about whether you're white or Negro, uh, you know, and then of course my stepfather who was colored, uh, which is to say he was African and Indian. So, so uh, South Asian living in apartheid South Africa uh, he was deemed colored and that was on his yeah. birth certificate. Yeah. So there's the disaggregated uh, data has been um, around for some, you know, nefarious reasons. Mm -hmm. And, um, and Canada opted not to do it. I would say not for altruistic reasons because they didn't do it uh, when it came to indigenous people. So now going forward, uh, the data is should we should have it there's particularly when we're thinking about pandemics mm -hmm. and, um, you know I don't, you know the history of Vancouver uh, and I talk about it in the blog uh, yeah. 
the you know the the dismantling of the black community and you know my parents met in that community my mother is from her you know my maternal family is from northern sweden my paternal family is from western africa you know biracial they met and what was the black neighborhood it was also the place you know to kind of go and party it was where the you know the after hours was it was like where all the good times were and so uh and uh, that neighborhood was dismantled by this you know and so it just you know the black community in vancouver like was thrown to the like if you could think about the dandelion kind of yeah. blowing off into the wind uh though we've been organizing ourselves more now but the fact that uh you can't you know you, like the, the you know you can't you can barely even track how many of us are in this province let alone city uh, because there isn't that data so it's it is necessary um the question is how is that uh data analyzed and yes i, I don't trust uh, white supremacist patriarchal colonial neither do i i will be honest with you the reason that we should have the data is because yeah. it should be public yes so that the um anal analysis of that data can be done by statisticians sociologists economists of color that's why this reset is very important yes i think because um in the reset we the question and the point that you're making around the disaggregated data uh should be a part of the reset mm -hmm. and uh and other things need to be part mm -hmm. of the reset. so it's uh these are these are some really, really interesting moments. Uh, I, you know, I feel hopeful most of the time. Me too. Uh, I'm a eternal optimist. I really am. As much as I, as much as people, I know, I have my moments, that's fine. I mean, but on top of it, like, I mean, we get to talk about this in a way that wasn't, excuse me, that wasn't, you're an activist, okay? You know, you know, you know what it's like. You know that you were the black radical, that you were off, you were off the rockers five years ago, and look where we are now. And I just want to shout out to all the black activists who were told that they were fucking radicals, that they were crazy, that they were whiny, that they want something for nothing, that they're lazy, that they're this, that they're that, that they're wrong, that they're stupid, and just say thank you. That's all I have. Thank you. Because we were right. And we knew we were right. That's the thing. We so, knew it. I'm, I'm a bit older than you, so I, I, I'm saying, you know, not five years ago, I'm going to say 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, 100%. I agree with you. The, there's been, uh, you know, the, and, you know, and I feel like I'm standing on uh, the shoulders of giants. Know, yeah. Uh, and that's, uh, it's, been a, it's been a journey. But yeah. we've been seeing some exponential shifts, I'd say, because yeah. of social media. Yeah. Uh, it's been harder to hide. Uh, it's harder that these things are being revealed. Black uh, activism made social media. Okay. I love, I love black Twitter and I love native Twitter. Yeah. Not, you know, Same. Twitter is, is, Same. Where, Same. Where I go for the, the, all the, the best, the best uh, satire and the best humor and the best analysis. Yeah. Yeah. Situation. Definitely. Now you wanted to talk to, you wanted to talk about animals. Why? So, uh, well, um, you know, we've, we've been making the, the connection for quite some time about the relationship between uh, domestic violence and, uh, and, you know, well, 
you know, to even go further back, of, since we're talking about colonization, like the the whole idea of, of man having dominion, man, quote unquote, having the dominion over animals, you know, has been part of a religious belief system that is, you know, part of, in, you know, within Canada. Mm-hmm. And it, it does shake down in the way that, you know, that we are kind of our hierarchy of humans and, and where other species fit in that. And the, uh, you know, the coronavirus is believed to have come from uh, that the that the the genetics are from bats, and it came um, via a secondary intermediary species of um, uh, pe- pangolins, which mm-hmm. are uh, these kind of anteater species. Uh, and so I've always made the connection, or I've been making the connection between this idea of um, there's people have been sort of horrified with wet markets in China, and uh, and I don't and I don't make I don't for me that you know the kind of the, the the seeking of exotic animals for the consumption and the entertainment and the exportation of humans is That's a global right. phenomenon and even you know this uh, recent netflix tiger show uh gives us another version of basically the same thing like they're the same idea i'm um, glad you put this into perspective because i wasn't going to watch it <laughs> but now I'm like, ooh, I you've provided a new lens. Well, and it's a thing to kind of check out, like just how. Well, there there was even this joke I saw. Uh, uh, somebody posted um, this article that said that black people are, you know, they're, we're, you know, we spent a lot of time critiquing Hollywood and and you know the absence of black people within Hollywood, but not when it comes to this Tiger Show. <laughs> There's no black people in this Tiger Show, and that's and we are happy. <laughs> this ain't us (laughs) but it's so funny because when you talked about man's dominion over animals it really does extend to man's dominion over nature yes you know who talks okay so do you know this book of course i love shireen yes okay so for those of us i've got that in my bookshelf right behind us here awesome so um this, uh, for audio listeners, this is uh, Race, Space, and the Law, Unmapping a White Settler Society by Shireen Razak, who I totally, listen, this book is, like, you need to take it in small chunks. It's so right. dense. Yes. And it's, it's so, but it will blow your mind. I barely am in chapter one. Chapter one, and I was, like, blown away. The first page. And basically, she talks about the Eurocentricity with which um, the whole man versus nature mythology is built. And how, you know, and it makes me think of all these, these white nature lovers, you know what I mean? That it is, and I say white because nature is different in communities of color. The idea of dominion over nature is hella white supremacist. And, you know, instead of working with or being one with nature or respecting nature, which, what, which is the attitude I find more in communities of color, especially indigenous communities, of course. Um, and, you know, when you, when you talk about like that whole construct, that's what it reminded me of. Um, and the whole idea of power 
over something that is static and great in size and proportion is instrumental in white supremacist lore. Uh, yes, and I, I, I like to say colonial white supremacist, patriarchal, in part because that map, that little map that, I sh that we were looking at earlier, yeah. gives us a sense of just how those ideas came through Europe and moved around because of yeah. course, uh, indigenous communities all around the world lived in tune with the with with the systems, with the cycles, you know, with the moon and the sun rising, and, and, the, and animals, and the and the animals and the yeah. plants, and, and knowing that there was a connection, that there was a synchronicity, there was a a relationship, and most of the spirituality and uh, and and worldview was based on this interconnectedness, uh, and of course, Europeans had that as well. I mean, the people living in that region now, known as Europe, had it as well. And it was really, a, in part, a lot to do with philosophy and religion that made that disconnection uh, over time. I'm talking about, you know, we're talking about centuries ago. Uh, and so, yes, in the 21st century, uh, this is a really good time for us to reassess what our relationship is to, uh, to, the, to the land, uh, to, to the environment. And I'm not talking about, talking about environmentalism. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, this capitalist consumerist approach to it rather a more spiritual and a, a more a sense of a that we are a species we are um we are species we have a, a we have a reliance on mother earth for our survival for the air for the water for the you know for and to and that to live in balance with that uh, goes against capitalism uh and so it is we're at this time right now so back to domestic violence mm -hmm. idea that you know, for many, for many families, the abusive partner is abusive to the, the companion animals that live in the house, mm. the dog and the cat and whatever else. And so that is, uh, you know, we see that, what, you know, right up to physical abuse, up to killing animals, with the whole point of having the family witnessing that. Oh, interesting. It's to instill the fear. And, yeah. fear. Uh, and so the animal, you know, takes the, takes takes um, the violence and sometimes lethal violence and uh, and the family observes it the, you know the the ones that are being subjugated by you know that kind of that power structure in other words if I'm doing this to to spot I can do this to imagine what I'll do to you yes and also to hurt because often the the companion animals are beloved to ah, yes the, you know to their other families so it's a way of really terrorizing and hurting, uh, you know, children and um, to, you know, to have their beloved dog. And I, you know, you might've seen that it was in Florida. You might've saw it, it was a, maybe about a year ago now. I don't know, time, time is just quite different. Yeah. Uh, where there was this um, man that was on camera, the, the daughter had, she set up a camera in her room because she was used to her dad coming in and kicking the shit out of her on a routinely basis. And, you know, attacking her dogs. And so she had, she was in her room with her dogs. Her dad came in and, you know, and slapped her around and then started beating on the dog and she caught it all on camera. And uh, so that was, uh, you know, he was, he was, uh, he was, he was part of the ruling class, you know, in this small area in Florida. Yeah. He was a real estate developer, of mm. course, had all this kind of wealth and and here he was, you know, just brutalizing his daughter and her dogs on camera. It was, um, 
you know, he took a big backlash, you know, within the, you know, within that community because, and, you know, within the local media reports, but it gave us an indication of how animals are used. He told her, I'm going to beat this dog. I'm going to, he warned her. And then she screamed, of course, and tried to protect the dog and he threw her off and then was beating the dog. So it, I mean, it was horrible to observe, but mm -hmm. it, but that's what happens. It, it was um, a fly on the wall, in this case, a camera on the wall viewpoint into what, how uh, domestic violence is uh, used to control and to not, not only the animal, but, uh, but the human uh, mm -hmm. in the space to show that dominance. This is always about power and control. Yeah. And yeah. that goes back to, at, at, you know, man is dominion over, yeah. you know, another species is that to position humans at the top of this, you know, kind of pinnacle is a mistake. Mm. We're a part of a cycle and a circle, mm. but that's not the way capitalism sees. That's not the way colonial patriarchy has set it up. And that's not the way that, you know, white supremacy has it set up either. Well, I just, and you know, as much as, you know, we talk about white supremacy, I, I do want to say that, you know, gender-based violence really is, um, it's irrespective of race, of it class, is. of, uh, I do think sometimes um, that sometimes there are certain men who get a pass, of course, um, but it really, it really is one of those issues that really infuses every community. Oh, is that your cat? <laughs> this is one of them. Yeah. I'm, uh, you know, I'm the, I'm the, you know, the, I'm the 50 something year old feminist that's single and lives with her cats. You know, there's uh, all kinds of uh, stereotypes that, uh, black really don't crack. <laughs> Uh, where can people find you on social? Oh, um, so I, I'm at, uh, where am I? <laughs> I'm at uh, underscore Angela Marie Mac uh, uh, on Twitter. Yeah. Also, um, I think uh, Battered Women's Support Services is at BWSS on no, Twitter. No, it's at Ending Violence. Oh, it's at Ending Violence. Okay. And what are you guys on Instagram? Okay. Yeah, we're at Ending Violence on Instagram as well. Okay. And then I'm um, I'm uh, Angela underscore Marie underscore twelve twenty three. Okay, girl. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Let's just say at ending violence. Let's just stop it. There. All right. All right. So uh, until next time, I'm sure you and I will probably be tweeting or or DMing off like off the podcast because I have so many like questions and stuff for you. And like, I love talking about like the different layers and pieces and tentacles of all of this. It's really, really interesting to me. So we'll talk. We'll talk. All right. So let's say bye. One, two, three. Bye. 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 Bye.